Today on the Unconventional Dyad Podcast. Here's the magic of this practice. You're actually going to meet people that are going to tell you they're fine when they get there. They're good. And then when they finish, they're going to say, you know what, can I talk to you? And I've referred hundreds of people. And then in my mind, what makes me feel good about it is that they might be getting the healing that they need before they they were really deep in that hole and it's very difficult to get out. Because just from my own experience, climbing, when I got out of hospital and I come home and I think I'm crazy, to the two and a half years that it took me to say, hey, here's where I am, that was a really difficult, difficult time. There's a lot of loss that you sustain. Welcome to the Unconventional Dyad Podcast, where psychology and psychoanalysis meet social justice, feminism, politics, climate change, critical theory, graduate student mental health, and the arts. Your hosts are Carly and Laura, two graduate students and friends committed to bridging the gap between the field of psychology, social issues, and society. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to episode number 43. Today we speak with Jose Hernandez, an electrical engineer turned artist, a speaker, transformational leader, founder of Inner Immersion, and co-founder of Immersive Arts. Topics of discussion include how Jose uses paint, digital art, metal, and glass to create living art, why he always starts with a black canvas, how art can be used as a vehicle for healing, the power of visual meditation and mindfulness, how Jose's near-death experience changed the trajectory of his life, and what dying can teach us about living. Links to Jose's work are in the show notes and at our website. If you are a mental health professional, please check out Jose's experiential Inner Immersion Certification Program, which delves into the therapeutic use of meditation, sound therapy, color therapy, and breath work. Please also check out Jose's Dare to Dream Again program, a 21-day immersive journey of self-discovery. I have just enrolled in this program and would highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in exploring a quote-unquote modern-day shamanic death ritual of sorts, to use Jose's words. You can find information about the certification program and the Dare to Dream program at innerimmersion.org or in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this enlightening episode. Thank you for joining us. Jose Hernandez, welcome to the Unconventional Diet Podcast. Thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor. It's an honor to have you on. Thanks so much. Um, Let's just start off with you introducing yourself to our listeners. Okay. My name is Jose Hernandez. I was born in the South Bronx. from a European mom and uh, a dad that was half indigenous. So uh, uh, growing up in the South Bronx had its challenges and then growing up in that environment kind of exacerbated that. So it's a complicated things. Uh, I grew up in a time where, uh, you know, growing up in the streets like that is very challenging, but uh, uh, I was able to navigate through school and, and uh, 
thanks to affirmative action, I was able to go to college and uh, I became an engineer. And I started living the American dream, I guess is a good way to put it, you know, where uh, you buy a home and, and you, you buy a car, you keep up with your neighbors. And I was living in a world that was like really competitive. So you have competition at work, you have competition in your social life. Uh, and everything's about, it, in my mind at that time, it was like keeping up with the Joneses, you know, uh, you know, oh, they got a bigger car than me. I got to kind of figure out how to do that. So I, I really worked hard. And uh, uh, so, so that was the path that I took. And uh, so I grew up believing I wanted to be an engineer. And once I started to do it, kind of like not really being happy there but because it paid well you 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 make sacrifices right so I I made that sacrifice and uh, it began to become the mirror of what my life would be you know how you you're almost living in an illusion where everybody thinks you're so everything's so great and you're so happy and everything's perfect and inside yourself, you're kind of like really challenged and struggling and uh, uh, trying to breathe, find the air somewhere where you could kind of like feel good about life, feel good about being here and things like that. Uh, so so that gives you kind of a bit of a mirror of where I grew up, right? Uh, uh, my dad uh, being First Nation and being foreign in the country. I was the first one born here of eight of us, and I'm the, the second youngest, uh, was trying to integrate into this, into the new world. You know, he was so excited, wanted to learn English and things like that. So, uh, uh, but he came with his mindset of how he grew up and how he was, right? So, uh, it, it, he created in me the image of what a man should be since I was very young. So we had to be very tough. We had to be very uh, emotionless. You know, we had to suck everything in. If we fell, we, were, we really couldn't cry, right? So you, you lose your ability to cry. You kind of like can't do that. You, you become ashamed of it to a certain degree. And uh, so that's kind of the puts in perspective the world I grew up in. and then the South Bronx was very violent. You know, there were a lot of things going on when I was growing up. So you had uh, uh, a woman's movement. You had the, the, the black movement where it, it went from Negro to being black power and things like that. And, and there was a lot of change going on and uh, everything seemed very chaotic. So I remember my sisters going out and burning bras in the street for women's lib and stuff like that. And, and uh, so it was a, an environment that's very similar to what it is today. Like all these years passed and you think you, you kind of look at what happened and you say, let's make everything better and it should be better. And then we're kind of like almost reliving that again. And there's all these movements and all these social things going on. So, so it was a mirror of today in a way. Right. And uh, so, I did see a lot of violence uh, growing up in the streets the way you do and having a, a father like that, that 
feels that for you to survive, you have to learn to fight and things like that. Uh, I did learn to fight. We, 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 uh, that's how we survived in our minds anyway. Right. So in, in two ways, I was very blessed. I, the, the affirmative action was one. The other one was that I was able to find a boxing club that kind of took me in and kind of mentored me in, in a certain way. Right. They're teaching you how to box and stuff, but it's a different mindset. Right. It's not about fighting in the street and, 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 and things like that. So there's discipline there. And, uh, and structure, which was lacking when you're by yourself in the street. So I think that kind of gives you an idea of where I'm from. So I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that's great. That, that paints a really nice picture of your life. Um, I do want to talk about your near-death experience, your NDE. You're very outspoken about it. Um, just tell us a little bit about that and its impact on your life. Well, you know, it's just... I do talk about it a lot. I've been really blessed that way. Uh, but I'm just going to kind of give you an idea of what that is. So so imagine one day you get up and today is the day that you're going to die. And that's never in my plan or in most people's plans. And even if you're terminally ill, you don't have a specific date unless you you have a medically induced passing, right? So I got up. I had broken some ribs at work. I was given some medication. I, I was allergic to it, but I didn't really realize it. I couldn't breathe. It was taking my, my breathing capability away. And uh, uh, because I was taped up, I had broken all my ribs. They had told me, well, you're not going to be able to breathe anyway. So I thought that was okay. That's normal then. And I didn't think about it. So I kept taking this medication. And it was a, wasn't like a instant, like, oh, I took a pill and I couldn't breathe. It was more uh, a slow pace kind of thing. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And and think about it as it started on uh, Thanksgiving weekend. And a few days after New Year's Eve, I was in the hospital. So they take me to the hospital, my wife and my son. And uh, of course, you think you're going to be all right. You have this mindset you're, you're invincible we we think that uh we're bulletproof often and so i get to the hospital it's 11 o'clock at night i'm struggling to breathe and uh about one o'clock in the morning i tell my wife and my son go home i'm gonna be okay there's nothing really wrong and uh, so you're waiting in the er and uh, they had already they were trying to stabilize me right so i had an IV and, and some things on and uh, the nurse said to me, you know, if you need anything, just push this button. So I uh, said, okay, I'm not going to push that button anyway, but yeah. So she left the room, she closed the door. And uh, I find myself in a strange place, right? Because I'm really struggling to breathe. And then I'm thinking, should I push this button or not? And that becomes a 45 minute decision. It becomes a 45-minute decision because I'm thinking about how I grew up. I'm a guy. I'm tough. This is nothing. I'm going to be fine. Relax. You know, you're going to be okay. And I'm trying to convince myself that nothing is happening, that this is okay. This is like, I'm going to be fine. At one point, I finally said, I, 
I'm really struggling to breathe, so I'm going to have to do something. So I, I pushed the button. And then it took about a minute for the nurse to get there. But that was like one of the longest moments of my life. And it really felt like uh, everything was in slow motion. Anyway, she finally gets there. She just opened the door and looked at me and she hit the button on the wall. Cold blue. I mean, it registers in your mind, but it doesn't register in your mind, if that makes any sense. I mean, you see it, but you're like, no, she just she didn't do that. She really didn't do that. A minute later, there's a crash team running into the room. I'm being lifted up. A board is, they put this wooden board under me. And they put me on top of that. And I remember clinging to the sheet. And I remember that they just pulled it off of me. And I didn't have the strength to hold it. What I felt was shame. I was so ashamed that they had stripped me naked and I was helpless to, to do anything about it, you know, and it, that feeling superseded the fact that I couldn't breathe. That makes any sense. Uh, then they, 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 they're putting all these IVs on me and, and they're trying to keep me breathing. So they got this, this thing and they're compressing it and shoving air down and, uh, I'm thinking, you know, almost like if I'm not physically present, like this is not really happening. This is, I'm going to be okay. It's fine. Don't worry. And uh, then I started thinking about my family and my children, my two kids. And I started thinking, what's going to happen to them? And then I became scared. And I felt this knot in my chest, like right here. So I can't breathe. And then I get this emotional knot. It was the strongest emotional knot I have ever felt in my life. It was so powerful. And I just felt like I was falling. And I was thinking, what if this is real? And they'll never see me again. I'm not going to see them again. And that was a very painful thought. So I'm sorry if I get emotional, but it, it's almost like I relive it when I think about it. So I said, no, take a deep breath, relax. You're going you're gonna to be fine. Now, I can't take a deep breath, but I'm telling myself that. So in fact, I can't take a breath at all because I can't get air in but I can't get any air out. I can't let go of what's in there that's spent already, that's used up out. So, uh, and all I hear is this tremendous wheeze. It's almost like it's coming from somewhere else. And uh, I start thinking about my kids. I feel this tremendous sense of fear because I don't believe in God. I don't have anywhere to hang my hat. I don't believe in life after death. I was more science-minded. I believed in math. I believed in science. And I said, you know, ultimately that's going to be the solution of everything in this universe. And here I am in a place where math and science don't mean a damn thing. And uh, so I was terrified. 
because I visualize myself being shut off like a light. Like, okay, somebody's going to pull the switch and I'm going to turn to black and disappear. The fear was intense. And my mind was telling me, reach out and grab one of these nurses' hands. I wanted someone to hold my hand. I felt like a kid meeting your mother. And I just wanted somebody to hold my hand. So I start thinking, of course. And in the course of that, I start thinking about my dad. He had passed five years ago. And me and my father had a very, very difficult relationship because he was he used to drink and he was abusive. So we bumped heads all the time. And I took on the responsibility of being my mother's kind of like protector. I was always like in between the two of them. And uh, so we never had a relationship other than arguing. So we were rarely sitting somewhere like enjoying our company. We never really did that. My father's mindset was very fixed. So I couldn't have long hair, even though he's indigenous. He would say, oh, you're gay if you have long hair. And I would look at him and say, okay. He said, I'm gay. There's nothing wrong with that, right? So anyway, I thought of him and I said, he's going to turn in his grave if I show these people that I'm afraid. So in my head, I'm taking this deep breath and I'm going, and I'm tightening up. And incredibly enough, my body stiffened. And I I was determined not to let these people know that I was scared. And I did that. I didn't reach out and take someone's hand. And I still wonder how it's possible that something that I was taught can overwhelm a basic need like that so intense because they were both very intense emotions both fear-based and uh, I uh, didn't do it I sat there at that point I start thinking well what if this is real and I'm not gonna make it I start thinking about God. And in my mind, it's creator, right? And I'm saying, what if you're real? Well, if you're real, I'm going to reach out to you right now. And I'm going to, so I have this conversation with God. And I said, God, if you're real, and you help me get through this, I promise I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to change my way. I'm going to be a better man. I'm going to be more conscientious of others. I'm going to be, you know, a better person. And then I waited. And what happened was my breathing became more difficult. And my heart started to become very erratic. And the thing is to have a monitor on so you hear that and you feel it. You don't really feel your heart in your chest unless it's going really fast, or in this case, it was just going crazy. It sounded like a horse galloping. 
and I felt it and I could feel its irregularity and then I got angry and I said what am I doing praying to what what am I praying to creator that you know it's not real and because he didn't answer me then I felt that anger and I, I knew it wasn't real what was I doing and I actually you know said the hell with you you're not real anyway and then the response was that my heart became incredibly erratic and then it stopped you hear that you feel that and then your mind is almost like caught up in this world that's really not real right so I, I hear the thing flatline and I hear that thing go pee 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 and in my mind I'm going oh my god heart stopped that's a thought and then how do I survive this is the next thought at that point I just said to myself this goes back to I grew up. I'm not giving up and I'm not quitting. But there's nothing I can do to stop this. So you, you had a difficult life. You, you did everything you could. You did the best. You could have what you had. And uh, it's okay to die. Uh, by this time my senses are like really supernatural if that makes any sense right so I could hear the IB dripping there's like four IBs on and I could hear them dripping and it sounds like water hitting a tin roof like splash 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 so loud and I'm looking at the wall and I can see the grain in the wallpaper and I'm like my god how's that possible and uh, anyway I look to the door and it's really glowing, really like a white glowy light and there's a shadow standing there. And I don't know if this is in my head, if I'm dreaming this or what, right? But anyway, the minute I said it was okay to die, that shadow moved. And the shadow walked around everybody in that room, moved around them and then just touched me. And when it touched me, I just felt this intense love and peace and calm. <laughs> and uh, I felt this breeze. Boom. And because I got long hair, I'm thinking, oh, this, my hair must be just blowing in this breeze. And I could breathe again. And I just felt this breeze just blowing, blowing, and lifting me and lifting me. And the next thing I know, I'm standing in the corner of the room. And I'm looking at myself. And I'm seeing these people doing, the crash team is working on me. They're doing CPR. And uh, I looked at my body. And I said to myself, that's me. And I'm dead. And then I asked myself this question, but if that's me, 
็นหัวใหม่ That was life changing at moment. I've been searching for who I am ever since. Not this physical me, but who I really am. So, <coughs> excuse me. I uh, stood there watching these people trying to keep me alive, and I, I hear this voice to my left, and it says, "Visualize your body as if it was a car, and that car has five million miles in it, and there's nothing we could do to fix it. So, you need to say goodbye to your body." I just said goodbye to my life, and now I'm being tasked with saying goodbye to my body. And the strangest thing happened: I looked at my body, and I had never been happy with who I had been. I was always not good enough. I was always so imperfect, so impure, and I had lived my life through that, you know. And here I am looking at my body and saying, "Oh my God." What a beautiful body! How perfect it had been, how loving it had been to me. It it did all this for me. It allowed me to live this whole life and have all these amazing moments, until it spent itself and it couldn't. It sacrificed itself for me. That's how I looked at it. Then I started to get these these little thoughts about these moments that are very simple moments in life, right? So I started thinking about holding my little brother's hand and uh, somebody smiling. A little kiss, a hug—all these little things that happen every day. Taking a deep breath, I, I hear birds sing, and and I started saying, "Why didn't you see that whilst you were still in your body? Why didn't you recognize all those amazing things that are happening every day in life that we take for granted? Why didn't you think about that ever? Why did well, well we always worried about money and work and things like that." And uh, so I felt honored and so grateful to have been in that body and to have had that experience. And I was even grateful that, even though I was no longer physically alive, and I could respect and say, "Wow, what a wonderful life I lived in that body." Uh, and it was very humbling. It was very humbling. So. The voice says to me, "Okay, now, now we have to keep going. We gotta go." So we move, and it it feels like a feminine presence to me. I'm not sure what it was. I just felt like feminine energy, and she took me, and I went to this space, and I could see this black hole in front of me. And I'm very science-minded, so that would have been my version of the tunnel. So I see this black hole, and it just pulls me right in. And I fall in, and I feel like I'm being torn apart. And it was not in my experience of crossing over. That was the un, the only unpleasant moment, right? And then I land, and she says, "No, we got to keep going." And there's another black hole, and the same thing happens. And I fall through that, and when I hit the bottom, she said to me, "You can't come impure here. You have to be perfect. You have to be pure spirit." And you had to let go of all your fear and all your pain and all those moments that had hurt you. They can't come with you. 
but you can bring the good memories. And that sounded so perfect, right? You're like, wow. Anyway, I find myself in this, this, this ball of color. Imagine there's a ball and you're in the center and all around you is this color and it's living and there's like a line in the center and that is so strong the force of that those colors there and there I don't know if I'm moving towards it or if it's coming towards me but I know I'm being drawn to it and the funny thing is I felt so welcomed and accepted by that and so like it didn't matter who I had been I was perfect and they were going to take me in and embrace me, which was an experience that I don't know if I ever had that experience in life where I felt so accepted and so like welcome that. But anyway, color took me in and the color was moving. It was alive. It was talking. And I could hear like a million voices talking to me at once. And it sounded like chatter. So I'm hearing this. And I am so like, wow. And whilst I'm there, there's this exchange that happens, right? So I'm being taught how to paint. I never painted in my life. So I'm being told, this is how you're going to paint. This is how you're going to do this. This is how you start. This is how you do it. So I was given an entire blueprint. And uh, when, when, when I finished getting that, I moved through the colors and I came out. On the other side, I guess we're going to call it, right? Some people call it heaven. And uh, I don't know. Could be another, whatever it was, right? So I'm, I'm in this place that's so beautiful and so peaceful and calm. And uh, growing up in the South Bronx, growing up in New York, growing up in, in, and then living in Florida for my life, being in this place where I could see these mountains and these beautiful clouds and all these, these, these forests so beautiful and all these animals roaming around free and so like carefree. You know, it was a very intense thing to see for me. So I'm seeing these foothills and I'm seeing these clouds make these real dark shadows on it. And it was so beautiful. And uh, I got a thought and the thought was, what's gonna happen to your kids? What about my children, right? What about my kids? And I hear the voice say to me, don't worry, you can see them from here. The next thought was, wow, I'm flying. And the voice just said, that's normal here. And then I started to move. And I had the experience of becoming one with everything that I got near. So if I got near a tree, I became that tree and I could feel that tree taking nutrients from the ground, feeding itself. I could feel it's hard. I could feel it like a living entity, a rock, a bird. I lived through all these things. I felt what they felt like. And uh, it was a very humbling experience because you realize how everything is just as alive as I am. And they have a consciousness that we don't credit them with, you know, they're just a bird, they're just a dog, they're just a cat. But they have the same feelings we have. Even the trees and the stones and everything around me had that, and the water, the air, as I, as I became all these things. And 
anyway, I keep on in this journey and I see, I, I see the snow on the top of these mountains and I go up there and when I get to the top, I see the sun to my left, to my right, and a cove, a beach to my left. And when I look at the sun, I can feel that breeze coming from there, so warm and inviting. It's almost like courting me. And I think, wow, that must be what's giving me this lift so I could fly. The warm air. And then I look to the left and I see a man in the water. And he's knee deep and he's got six children holding hands. They're all holding hands and to my right. And on my left is one child that he's holding hands with. And they're all like in the water about knee deep. And I said to myself, wow, let me go check that out, right? So I, I go down. And uh, maybe I'm 10, 15 feet away. And uh, the man turns around. And then I saw my dad. And he, uh, he just looked at me. And I looked at him. And the first thought in my head was, wow, what a miracle. What an opportunity I'm going to have to say to him what I couldn't say in life because I was tasked with taking him off of life support. And I uh, had a lot of guilt. You know, he had this mindset of never quitting, and I felt like I quit for him. I didn't give him an opportunity. And uh, so I took him off of life support, and uh, he passed. And there was a lot of guilt. And, not only that, but just our relationship. We never hugged. We never said we loved. I never remember saying to my dad, I love you, or he's saying to me, I love you, right? As we grew up. And uh, anyway, I'm saying, wow, I'm going to be able to do that now. This is my moment. And uh, I could hear him. And I know he could hear me, but we weren't speaking. And... Anyway, I got really close to him. And this is the magic of the journey. And the magic was I was able to hug my dad. When I held him, I became him for a moment. And I could feel his life. I kind of relived it in that short instant. And I could see why he was the way he was. And I, it didn't justify it, but it made me understand. And then I knew that he was proud of me, that he did love me, you know. And uh, he never had said those words to me. And here we were now telling each other how we cared and feeling it really more than, than, than becoming. A, it, it. Hearing a word is one thing, knowing it is another. And that's what we were experiencing. I was knowing what he felt. Anyway, we let go. And he looked at me and he said, Jose, you have to go back. And I just looked at him and I said, Heck no, no way. I really like it here. Now, that's a stark contrast to when I was actually dying, that I went through that whole exchange of feeling shame and feeling anger and feeling praying to a God that I didn't believe in and, and going through all those emotions, fear. And, and then ultimately I had to accept it. And here I'm saying, hey, no, I'm not going to 
relive this again. I'm going to stay here. I like it here. I know my kids are going to be okay. Anyway, we kept on with that. And uh, I felt this tug in my chest here, but it was like from my back. And I wound up in body. I opened my eyes and I saw the doctor doing CPR. And when I, when I opened my eyes, she just kind of a little startled. She moved back. And the next thing I know, I'm back with my dad. And we're having this conversation again. And he said to me, you know, Jose, uh, I'm going to do a deal. My father used to always do deals, right? So he said, I'm going to do a deal with you. And I said, okay. What's the deal? He said, if you go back, I promise that when your time comes, I will come and get you. And I said to myself, how could you say no to this deal? This is a great deal, right? So I went back. I said, okay. The minute I said it instantly, it was like, boom, I'm in my body. I'm opening my eyes, and then I'm here. My thoughts. First thought is, how bad of a person was I that even heaven kicked me out? And the next thought was feeling the discomfort of being in body and being so ill, and saying, why did I accept that deal? And so they stabilized me. I wound up in hospital for three months. I was intubated for a few weeks, long time. Time loses itself. There is no time. But there is a clock in front of you, in that room that you're looking at. And there's the cold blues that are constantly happening while you're there. And there's a prognosis that says you're not going to make it alive. Take care of your affairs. And so every time they hit a cold blue, I'd be thinking that couldn't be me again. And uh, what I did, I escaped to that ball of color. And in there, I found peace and calm. That became my go-to. And I felt safe there. Three months later, I leave the hospital. It takes me about six months to actually get my feet back under me. I lost about 30 pounds. It's about 115, 120 pounds when I left the hospital. And uh, anyway, they gave me a year and a half to live. I was 20 years old. Uh, they wanted to do surgery and remove half of each lung because they thought this was a, a progressive disease. It was just going to continue to eat my lungs up. And uh, anyway, I opted not to. And uh, so here I am telling you this, this amazing story. It's anecdotal. There's no way I could prove to anyone that this happened to me. But because of that experience, I don't need to prove to anybody anything. I am in peace. I am really secure in my skin because of all the lessons I learned while I was there. So that's my near-death experience. Uh, you know, it took me five years to get back, to embrace it, to accept this. You know, one of the, the things I, I struggled with was my cardiologist told me that I hadn't gone anywhere, that it was all in my head. My brain was still alive for two minutes. Oh, there's DMP, there's all these drugs, you know. In other words, you were, you were messed up on drugs and you were dreaming, right? It was all an illusion. and. I accepted that because I was still medically science-minded. I went to see. I went to the world of psychiatry. I needed help. 
and I saw psychologists and psychiatrists for five years. And I, the last two were my life changers. The next to last, I had gone to psychiatrists for two and a half years and I never told them why I was there. I couldn't say, I think I'm crazy and I'm here because I had this experience and it's not real. And I can't shake it loose. I think about it every day. I could never say that until this amazing woman sat next to me on a chair and she took my hand. And when she took my hand, I was back in the hospital, dying in that bed. And I was doing what I should have done then. Grab somebody's hand and get that comfort from that touch. Touch is so relevant to life, so important. And uh, I just opened up and I told what happened. She looked at me like I wasn't crazy. And that gave me comfort. I was very distrustful of people. That's how I grew up, right? Self-preservation means you, you shelter what you feel. You build all these walls around you and you, you, you have this armor. And people only see what you allow them to see. And so I had been that way even after the experience for all those years until she allowed me to kind of come out of the shell. And then she was unable to continue to see me and she put me with somebody else. I was really a very open-minded psychologist. And she was into mindfulness practices and things like that. And she actually helped me to really make peace with what was happening. So she didn't say that didn't happen to me. She said, okay, it happened to you, right? So how we deal with it. And it was like, have one foot here and one foot over there. So she simply told me, because I wanted to be medicated. I wanted a magic pill. She said, if I give you a magic pill, you're going to lose that spiritual side of what you gained. If you talk only about spirit, they are going to give you a pill. So how do you want to deal with that, right? So we have to find a middle ground where you're going to be content. So she said, keep one foot here and one foot over there. And that became my mantra in a way. And it, it put my life back together because I could live with both. I didn't have to make a choice anymore. And uh, it allowed me to speak, like to have this conversation with you. I could never speak about my experience. My, my family never knew what happened to me. They knew I died, but I couldn't speak to them. I was worried they would think I'm crazy. They thought I was crazy anyway, right? So a few years after that, me and my wife part ways because she she didn't know who I was. She just told me, you know, I don't know who you are anymore. You're not the guy I married. I wasn't, you know. One of the things I learned from that experience was to accept reality. And I knew I wasn't that person anymore. I thought I was better because I was more spiritual and more forgiving and, and, and you know, like that. But, you know, so it, it changed my life completely, that experience. So... I found someone else that's a lot more open, that's more understanding of where I'm coming from and, and accepting, you know, and it wasn't all about money anymore. It wasn't all about that life. It was about 
what has value in life, you know? And to me, I live magical moments every moment of every day. And I am very peaceful in that world. I still work, I still do all the things I have to do, right? We still gotta pay bills, but I don't look at it as a chore anymore, something that I have to do. I just look at it as being grateful that I have the opportunity to do it. And that's the big shift that happened in me. So that's my near-death story. And I, I know it's a long story, but I'm sorry it took so long. But if you want to know what it was like, that's what it's like. Dying is very difficult. It's very traumatic. It's not the way people think. Most of us don't come back to tell that story. And that pain, once we move, disappears and becomes peace, calm, and love. Now, I don't know if I would have been dead for 10 minutes. I was clinically dead for five minutes. If I would have went deeper into that rabbit hole, what the experience would, would be, you know, if I would have lost myself. But when I was dead, and I, I gave it this term, it's my own term, it, it's the preservation of the self. I was still me somehow. I didn't lose who I had been. I was fully aware that I was Jose and this was my dad when I saw him and my kids. I was conscious to some degree of all these things that had been a part of my physical world. And uh, so that's the experience of dying. And uh, I hope it helps people to kind of navigate through life. So. That's uh, an amazing story and an amazing experience. Experience. Um, thank you for for sharing that and being so honest about it. Um, I'm sure, you know, the actual experience of what you went through doesn't even you can't even express in words. Uh, probably, I'm imagining. But thank you for trying. Um, yeah. And and yeah. thank you for for being a, a, a good listener. Oh, absolutely. That's kind of a little bit of a part of my job as a therapist. So, you know, in therapy, we think about, um, we talk about emotionally corrective experiences. And I think that's just like a little sliver of maybe the the thing that you went through, because it sounds like your NDE was an emotionally corrective experience. And, and that experience you had with the psychologist who held your hand was an emotionally corrective experience. Um, and yeah, I just, that, that really spoke to me, um, the way you told your story. You know, it, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, we, we, we filter our lives through so many filters that we, we lose touch with what being alive actually is. Yeah. You know, and we feel it every once in a while. So if when you get a cold splash of water, it's like, wow, it, it, it kind of jerks you, you know, in, into whatever. And, and we never think about breathing until we can't. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I think the world is in a, in, a, in, a, in a space now where it might be moving in a different direction where we want to become more aware of being in the, in the present and, and acknowledging what's happening around me right now and stop thinking in a way of past and future and be focused more on, on the now and I, I, I'm very excited that that's going on. Absolutely. And I think you kind of do that with your art too, which I want to talk about. Um, you started painting after your near death experience. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us about 
your art, about your artistic style, about your artistic process? Sure. Well, bear in mind, I couldn't paint stick figures. So I have this experience where I'm in the light, in the, in, the, in this realm of color and, and they're actually telling me what to do. So it's very clear. So I, I paint on a black canvas. I, I paint my canvas black first. And that represents creation. It's like looking in the night sky, right? And imagine that we have this sense that in space that's empty we believe it's empty but i was being told that space is never empty in that space is all the ingredients to create everything that you see and know so you start there and you paint in layers right so i paint one thing and then i paint over it and then i put another layer and then i use different media right so i would take pictures and integrate it in there and ultimately I would put it on a computer and create a three-dimensional space because I was told there's nothing that's flat it doesn't exist it's everything has space to it and in that space is whether you might call it God or creation or whatever we believe in if you're a scientist you might think of it more particles or things like that however you think about it that's what exists there and now you're going to mimic how we grow up by doing that. The universe, we're a copy of the way the universe is to a certain degree. So the universe started like that and then stars came out and then planets and then this and then that, then ultimately life. And it's what it is now, but it was like that 13 billion years ago, if we use their, their numbers, right? And so we pattern ourselves like that. So I'm growing up. And this happened to me, and I said, I don't want that to happen to me again. I'm going to put a wall right here. And then we start building these skins. And it, it asked me this very important question. How many people are you in life? And I didn't understand that question. So I'm doing it. I'm doing it the way they told me, but I need to find out, understand why. And the reason is that when I'm five, I'm not the same person that I'm when, when I'm 10. And then when I'm 13, I'm different than when I'm 17. And when I'm 21, I'm a different person when I'm 30. So it was telling me to take into account all the different people that we are. So that when somebody looks at this painting, they're going to see themselves. As an observer, not as a person that's going to look at themselves to re-experience their life in a way that is going to cause them to relive trauma and stuff like that, right? So I'm, I'm trying to assimilate this. I'm trying to absorb this information and say, how do you put that in, in, into art? So it was a very simple thing to me. Color is alive. Color speaks to us. We don't know how, right? So it, it explained it to me very easy. So if I look at three paintings and I like the one in the middle, it told me it's because that one's communi communicating with you and you're resonating with it. The other two are not speaking to you the same way. So you're like, I don't know if I like these two, I like this one. So it explained to me a lot of things like that and it made everything very simple. My dying experience made life simple. It took the complexity away. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to go through the process of, well, we have to research this to make sure it's real and stuff like that. 
That doesn't matter. I know that when people look at art, they're going to pick a piece of art that they like. And in my mind, whether it's real or not, it's because that art is telling them, pick me because I resonate with you and, and you're going to resonate with me. And there's a communication happening. So I look at it like that. So the idea is when you look at the art, you look at yourself, but you look at yourself all the way back to your beginning. And the beginning is you go through all your ancestral tree, you go through everything that you lived to be who you are now. So everybody that was pertinent in my life, that was relevant in my world is integrated into every piece of art that we see, not only mine. And because it explained this clearly to me, we want to tell people who we are. We want people to know our story. We want to be validated. We want to be heard. Everything we do tells people who we are. So when I wear this hat and I wear my shirt, it's telling people Jose is a certain way. I'm telling, I'm broadcasting to you who I am. Most of us don't see that. They look at if I'm a threat, if I'm not, what impact am I going to have in the world? Do I have something that they don't have? They begin to look at us in ways of like what's missing in their world in many ways. And anyway, so the, 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 this was all explained to me in seconds over there. So I came back with this and I said, well, how do I capture it? And then I said, okay, this is the only way. I need to do it in the digital world. I need to attach lighting to it when it comes out. So when I when my when you see this painting behind me, if I light it in a certain way, it begins to move. Colors begin to change, and the colors change for two reasons. One is because of when you hit a color with a different color, it changes it, and two, it peels the outer layers out and moves into a, a layer that's beneath. And so, the paintings really represent people, represents anything in life, anything that's living. And in that sense, it does it because it's got all these layers and filters. And it was very clear that I need to paint on metal or glass. I do it on watercolor paper too. But when you look at it on metal or glass, there's a slight reflection of you in it. So the idea is that you're in there somewhere. And uh, I found the art to have tremendous impact on people. So I painted the art. And when I started painting the art, it was like to use in meditations, right? So I'm thinking, with my experience, I think I, I need to go into the mindfulness world and kind of go there, and that might be my home. It turned out to be my home, but when I created the art, that was the sense. And I said, I could use this art and the colors changing as a guided meditation, and people will be sitting observing it, and they're going to get an experience from it. That was a thought. I started painting in 2003, uh, the same format, always with a black canvas. I integrated life, right? So there's always a photo in there of something real in life. There's a photo of nature. So it speaks to Mother Earth. It speaks to what we call the four elements in my father's culture and things like that, right? So all of that is integrated in there. It has water, it has air, it has fire, it has... All of that in there. So it it engineered to resonate and speak to us. And it is always a photo of a journey. So I, I've been blessed that I've taken a lot of tours in cars and we take a lot of photos of the road. And so I pick a photo of, of a journey, of a road, because that's the journey of our life. 
that's the path. We call it the Red Road in my father's culture. It's just the path that we're on, which is our world, right? And so that's what the art does. Uh, started 2003. In 2008, I get this idea. Let me use it as a meditation. And so I went to several medical facilities, detox centers, rehab centers. And in the beginning, everybody said, yeah, great, and never called me back. Because it, it was, my talk would be about my near-death experience. And then I started to work with people one-on-one -on -one and things like that, and, and we started using it. And I started to understand really how it worked. And what it did was it created what people call breakthroughs. And the most important thing, it created trust. Now, that was integral to me because of my experience going to the mental health arena, where I wasn't really able to speak for quite a while until they held my hand, right? So I was thinking about all those things, and I said, okay. I went over there. I started speaking about breakthroughs and how people opened up, which was a fact, and how they were feeling really comfortable, even though it was groups. We did it always, we, did, we worked in groups, right? So there was always eight people, six people, 10 people. And I, I was really amazed how they all built this trust so quickly in this little, you get tightly knit very close. And uh, so anyway, I started going to these uh, rehab centers and things like that. And they finally said, okay, let's do a proof of concept. And the proof of concept was usually with one of the mental health professionals and maybe one, two or three of their clients. And that started to do very well. And, and, and I called it an immersion because it's about going into yourself and looking at yourself, you know, in, in a good way, even if your life is very difficult, even if you're struggling with addiction, even if you're struggling with whatever you're struggling with, abuse, whatever it was. Because I was amazed to see how many people are actually abused. It was like shocking to me. like, And... Uh, how these people would open up in one or two sessions and the sessions are very specific so they they i use breath work i use art i use meditations i use drumming music sound and then i became a minister so i could do healing touch and when you put all those five ingredients together the way we did i saw that people just opened up and it's a three-hour session. And by the time you start, so visualize this. You come in, I have you paint for two minutes. I give you a box of 24 crayons. And the idea is you're going to be a kid again. And they draw for two minutes, and I time them. Why do I time them? Because when I started, I didn't. And then I realized they were trying to paint what they thought I wanted to see. And I don't want you to paint what you want me to see. I just want you to paint. So I learned that really quickly. And I realized that in two minutes, they're going to draw something really quick. They're going to be very stressed. They're going to... And then I asked seven questions like, you know, how do you feel about yourself? Things like that. We go through the whole process. I tell them a story. And how I build trust is by telling them a real story of my life. And then they trust you right away. And then... We also say whatever happens here is going to stay here. I, uh, because people open up so quickly, I, I became aware of 
what services were available in my community. If you needed a hotline for something, here it is. You know, they could always pick that up on a piece of paper when they left if they wanted to. If they needed a referral, you know, I would help them to find someone maybe. And a lot of times people want to do a one-on-one. So I continued to do this. I worked with quite a few rehabs. I worked with a lot of mental health professionals. And I began to understand the world a little better. I'm not a mental health professional, but I, I know a little bit about it. And uh, so I started working with certified addiction professionals and all different arms of it, right? People that specialize with abuse. And then there were the eating disorders. And it was like so complex. I was like, my God, this is like, you opened up one thing and then all of a sudden it became a thousand. But it worked equally well with any person. And then my focus became trauma. So what was the cause? of why you are here the way you are today. Anyway, that uh, process works very well. It started opening people up. Nova University wanted to do a research on trying to figure out how it worked. I moved from Florida at that time here. So I'm starting this thing like over, but we're making a lot of progress and I'm working with multiple hospitals now and uh, uh, we're gonna try to create two incubators for research and we're doing really well. The foundation in a hospital here is just to prove the concept. So now it's, it's, it's at that level where it's going to become something that's real soon. And the other reason I did it was because when I talked to a lot of mental health professionals in South Florida, a lot of them come out of the university and they're telling me, how do we populate our practice? So, you know, they did these lunches, they invited me all the time and they invited me to all these events and I'm still getting invited to a lot of these things, right? Uh, and uh, I started thinking, well, here's what they're doing and here's how they work amongst themselves. So an eating disorder facility would invite a, a, several psychologists to come in and become aware of their facility and the services that they offer. So I started thinking, so what can we do with this practice that can help them populate their practice? And then I started thinking, the magic about this practice is that it helps you populate your practice because people come in that are fine. They're perfect. They're great. Everybody that comes there is like, wow, we're good. We're all right. So when you ask your questions in the beginning, they're really good. Then when, when you finish the practice and they paint their second picture and you ask the questions again, that lens is really different the way they're they're you know, so it's, it's more real. Now you're dealing with the real person and not the filtered person. And I realized that the issue with the practice in my mind was, in my case, I waited till I was desperate to call. So here is an opportunity to intervene before that person feels so desperate that they call. Because a lot of times they won't call and they're gonna do something that they can't reverse. And so I started thinking like that and I said, well, here, Here's the magic of this practice. You're actually going to meet people that are going to tell you they're fine when they get there. They're good. And then when they finish, they're going to say, you know what, can I talk to you? And I've referred hundreds of people. And then in my mind, what makes me feel good about it is that they might be getting the healing that they need 
before they they were really deep in that hole and it's very difficult to get out because just from my own experience climbing when i got out of hospital and i come home and i think i'm crazy to the two and a half years that it took me to say hey here's where i am that was a really difficult difficult time there's a lot of loss that you sustain your colleagues no longer become your colleagues your friends become very distant you're becoming very isolated and the more isolated you become and the more time you spend with yourself the deeper you find yourself falling into that or, or getting into that hole and uh anyway so that's that's the mindset behind that practice and then the next thing I started to do was immersive arts. That's called inner immersion. If you go to the website, you can see about it. There's a certification program now. I'm, I'm hoping to get a lot of mental health professionals involved so that they could use this practice to help. Not, not only help their clients, I don't call them patients, I call them clients, but you know, to create an environment where they can actually populate their thing and catch people before it, it's pretty serious. Uh, so, so that's what the inner immersion is. And then I did immersive arts, which is really the same thing in an outdoor environment or in art. So if you recall my experience, I died. I went into the ball of color. They were living and they spoke to me. So I have been working so hard since I came back to duplicate that. So now I have art that moves. So it feels like it's alive. It feels like it's moving. And then we added a component to it so that it communicates with you through technology. So if you tap your phone on these sculptures or things like that, it, it'll invite you to a portal where we have meditations, where we have, uh, you know, music, calming music and stuff like that. So if you're in a hospital and you're stressful, you can mitigate your, your anxiety and stuff like that. And that's what we're doing with this two hospitals. So we're doing a, a program where they're able to access it from anywhere in the hospital. And, and get into that portal. So even if I'm going to get my blood out and I'm like, oh God, I got to get my blood out, we relax. And, and what do I learn? I learned that if we kind of mitigate stress and anxiety by 10%, we begin to, to make changes in outcomes. And that doesn't mean you cure someone that's dying from cancer, but it means that their experience is better and it helps their family to cope better. Uh, you know, grieving is a very difficult thing to do. I grieved my death, I grieved my father's, I grieved my mother's, I grieved my, but each one was less, right? My father's was before my experience, so that was devastating. And because of how I felt, I had my death, I grieved my own death. It took me a while to, to, to say goodbye to the Jose that was before and embrace the new one. That's not easy. I came out of there addicted to drugs because I was so medicated. It took me three years to, to, to get off. So I understand those challenges. They're, not, they're really difficult things to overcome. It sounds easy. Oh, yeah, stop. Yeah, I got it. I know that. But let's apply it, and that becomes a different animal. And uh, so when my brother passed, it was very painful, my younger brother. But I knew where he went in my own heart and mind it doesn't work for everybody right and i understand that i couldn't allow them to disappear in my grief because i when my father died i wanted to 
forget everything. Like didn't ever happen. None of this was real. And then I, I started to embrace the fact that he's somewhere. And I allowed myself to think that way. In the beginning, I couldn't. It was not, nah, that's impossible. You know, you become nothing when you die. So I started to learn that if I kept him alive somewhere inside of me and honored that, that it helped me to deal with. Maybe they're not gone. And you have to do that in a healthy way so that it doesn't become like, a, you know, you're like overwhelmed by it and all oh, you're talking to someone that's not there. And then my, my brother, my, my older brother passed and I, it was easier. When my mother died, I was hurt and I felt injured, but I just thought about how loving she had been and, and the life that we had lived together. And I held on to those memories versus the memory of her actually dying and seeing her, you know, that, that like that, you know. So I started thinking about those choices that we make and, and how we, we deal with grief and stuff like that. And a lot of times we remember the painful things. And I just now choose to remember all the good moments that I have with them. And it makes me feel good. It makes me feel happy. It makes me feel content. And, and in my heart and mind, I know my mother's somewhere. I know my brother's somewhere. My dad is somewhere. And I know that they're aware of me still. And that's what I want to believe. And that's a choice that I make. You don't have to believe that. But it makes my life really simple and easy to live. So that's what I do with any immersion. I'm working with a couple of cities right now, some in Florida, some here in Canada, where we're going to put these sculptures up and they're going to be these portals that if I go there, I could relax, I could hear meditation, I could hear drumming, I could hear mute, whatever, whatever I need. Uh, it's going to let me know what services are available in the community. So if I am at risk or I'm in the vulnerable sector, if I need food today, where can I go? If I need shelter, here it is. Uh, if I'm being abused and I, I, I'm feeling like I need to speak to someone, where do I go? And it's also going to offer services for the entire community. So if I'm a tourist, what's another place where I can go? Where am I, I want to go to eat? So it, it, it's going to serve the community. And then the community is going to take that data to improve their services and things like that. So it's like, a, I see it as a win, 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 win. Everybody benefits, everybody gains. And uh, I see what I saw when I was dead becoming real. And if it becomes real, then it validates my experience of being real, if that makes any sense, right? So that's kind of like where I am. And my dream is to create a space where people could feel safer, where people could feel more be more open, be more who they are. So the, the, we're creating a system called the people's light, which is about the light that burns inside of us. So the sculptures are really lit. They're made of glass and metal and uh, they have this technology integrated into them so you can speak with them. You know, I started talking to an organization in Florida and, you know, their issue was uh, sex trafficking. Can we put something in there that can help these young kids to kind of seek help or to find a space where they where they could do that? And all, all that could be done. There's another retreat that we're working with where they want like a, a hotline, right? Uh, a lifeline. So they have a, a, a huge 
complex. It's 80 acres. So if somebody's walking around and, and they're thinking maybe they want to do something, they are aware of it and they know exactly where they are and they could find them. And uh, so all that, they're helping me to grow the concept and adding things that I had not originally thought of. And I think it's going to become a huge uh, bridge between people and our world, your world. I, I, I include myself in there because I hope that I'm being able to help people in a good way and change their lives and, and kind of, you know, make that little nudge that changes your life, not today, but in five years. And I look at these as long-term fixes. They're not really short-term things. So it took me five years to really get a, a handle on the fact that I even wanted to continue to live, right? When you have this experience of dying, it's it was so beautiful. You're like, and you're struggling so much here. You're like, why, why do I want to do this? It made me understand how loving and graceful this world is and how, yes, I need to be here. There's a reason why I'm here. And even if I'm flipping burgers at McDonald's or wherever, I am serving because somebody's going to come and buy that. And in a way, I'm helping to put food in somebody's home. And if they bring that meal to their family, you know, it, to me, that becomes something special. So it, it helped me to validate everything that people do and give it value instead of looking at things as... Well, when I was an engineer, I was like, why would I want to flip burgers? You know, what the hell is that, right? Now I look at it in a very different vein and I, I respect it, you know, because all those people that do these kind of jobs is what allows us to, to be able to live, which is what allows us to buy food in a store. Somebody doesn't stock it. I can't go buy what I need. So it just made me to learn to be grateful for everything, you know, and not for you know, not only what I think is valuable. It made me understand that everything is valuable, that every person is valuable, that everything we do is valuable, you know, and, and some of us fall through the cracks and we need a little help. And and there's a whole community out there trying to do that, serve that, you know, your, your entire industry is focused on that, right? The medical arena, there's so many you know, frontline workers. I look at it all like that, right? So that's what my dream is. And that's what I, I'm hoping to be able to achieve here. So if anybody's interested, they could go to the website. I'm hoping that we could become an army of people yeah. practicing this this thing. It's, it's so simple. Because when you paint for two minutes and you do that twice, cold when you come in and when after we finish the process, and then we sit there as a group and we begin to interpret your art. Mm. And I say, okay, Laura, you as an artist, what were you trying to tell me? What were you trying to say here? And then everybody starts to chime in what they see. Oh, I see, I see. And it creates, the group becomes very tight and they begin to begin to tell their stories. And I think that's what, we all want to do in life. Even if my life has been very difficult, I want somebody to understand how difficult my life was and, and just be compassionate. They don't have to do anything, just listen. And and I think that helps to diffuse the intensity 
of, of that emotion and, and it helps you to feel better sometimes right so anyway Absolutely. that's kind of like what i'm doing and, and i hope that was a long answer i'm sorry no that's beautiful i i think the work that you do is so important and so needed especially now um and i love it kind of sounds to me like you're tapping into this collective wisdom from all these different people and from your own experience and i just love that um i think that's so so important and valuable um i'm wondering jose before we start to wrap up here if you could maybe talk about um some of your hopes for the future maybe hopes for your own work or just hopes for the world? Well, in terms of my own work, I would like to see a sanctuary or a sacred space in everybody's home. And I think it should be art-based because I think art speaks to you. And I think there's something about ceremony and ritual that suspends our disbelief, right? It makes it easier to believe things that we can't prove. And so I think that's kind of like why I really want to wind up. And I want to see a world where people are more kind, more loving to each other. You know, I believe that I came here and that God or creator filled me up with love. And that I am supposed to use that up here, empty that. And I, I, I believe we live in a world because we're taught so many things that we kind of bottle that all up and we're afraid. We become afraid because we're going to be hurt. Oh, what if I love this person and they don't love me and then they leave or whatever, right? And I think we begin to bottle up all that and, and we don't use it. Then when you lay in that bed like I did and you're going to move on, you have a lot of regret. Why didn't do this? I didn't do that. Why didn't I do these things? Right. So I think my dream is to see people live their life. Not from the person they're taught to be. But from the person that they really are. We're all, nobody grows up, says I'm going to be a drug addict. Nobody grows up, says I'm going to be homeless. You know, we grow up with the same dreams. I want to be a teacher. I want to be this. I want to be that. Right. So. Remember that, you know, anybody fall into hard times. I did, you know, one day everything was great. The next day I lost everything I had. And so, you know, I, I, I was actually a drug addict when I left the hospital and it made me understand them from an experiential place, right? So I want to see the world be more compassionate. I want I want people to live, you know, if God gave us a full tank, creator, whatever you believe in. When we were here, when we were born, then use it. Use up all that gas. Leave all that you have here. Because you don't want to take that back with you. What you want to take is all the memories that that creates for you that are good. You know, because I know all these bad things that happen to us, because bad things happen to everybody, and they will. They couldn't move with me to the other side. So I know that's anecdotal and I know it's my own experience, but I believe that wholeheartedly, you know, and uh, I think that that's what we should be tasked to do. And that's the dream that I have for the world. 
you know, there's a lot of social injustice going on. There's all kinds of things going on right now. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, and there's all this fighting about things that I, that don't really matter that much, you know, and if we start just to think a little bit about my neighbors, my friends, the people I love, the people in my life, a lot of those things become easier to kind of embrace, you know, so I want to see a world that becomes unified. I want to see, my dream is to see a, a world of an outdoor museum of art that's communicating with people, that's helping them navigate through life, that's showing them here are resources. You know what? You're a little anxious, tune this on or listen to this and, and help yourself kind of get through some tough situations, you know, and, and, and honor your life, honor the people you love. Honor the breath that you take every moment. You know, ask yourself, you know, how many things had to happen for this Mother Earth to be what it is, that it has oxygen, it has water, has everything to, that we need to live. A lot of things had to happen. And whether you're science-minded when it comes to that and you say, wow, here's the process, you know, or you're more spiritual about that, either way, it's a complex system. And, you know, I, I just feel so grateful that so many things happened to make me who I am. And that includes my family. You know, we have a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. Oh, my father was an alcoholic. He was, a, you know, he did all these things. He was abused. Yes, he did. But I still loved him. And I thought I didn't when I was in life. And when he met me on the other side and I was able to forgive him and me, and then it turned out not about him forgiving me and me forgiving him. It turned out about me forgiving myself. That I learned the value of life. I learned the value of life when I was at the threshold of losing. And you don't need to be there. We could adopt that every day. And it's, you know, it's difficult to change all of a sudden, but if you change a little bit. You know what? The next time you feel like yelling at somebody because they didn't hurt, hear what you said and they misinterpreted it and you're ready to jump all over them, take a deep breath, relax, and think about it. You know, I've been there. It's happened to me. Let me try to be a little more patient and, and you know, and avoid a lot of situations that happen. You know, and, and I see life as a very hopeful place. I feel like I'm tasked with giving people hope. I feel you're tasked with the same thing. And if we could help people to feel that there's something of value, their life is value, has value, things like that, then I think this world would be so different and so amazing in many ways, you know? And, and that's a big ask, I know that. But you have to start somewhere. And there's so many people that have been doing that big ask way before I started. And so we're just following their footsteps. We're not breaking anything. We're not doing anything brand new. This is not like, wow, this is some crazy new technology. We're going to change the world, right? Uh, and, and yes, we're going to change the world, but we're going to change the world by making one person feel better about themselves one at a time. And maybe I can only do 10 in my lifetime, but that's 10. And if everybody does 10, then we've 
captured the entire population 10 times. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I see it. You know, it, it, I, I, I say it in a simplistic way because it is nothing complex about that. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautifully yeah. said. I think that's a perfect place to end. Um, thank you so much, Jose, for all of your work, for your wisdom, for being so vulnerable and sharing your story. Um, and thank you for all that you do. And thank you, Laura. And I, I, I send good thoughts your way, as we say in our culture. And I pray that much success comes to you. And not success in terms of things and stuff like that, but in things. I know you want to help people. And that, that that dream, you were able to live that a hundred times, a thousand times. So that, that's what I send to you and all your people out there. Uh, I send good thoughts your way. And I, I'm just going to say this, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't believe in angels before. But I believe that angels live inside of us. We could be the angels. And if we all take a moment to be that, we could really make a difference in this world. And I know you all have that in you. Every one of us, no matter how difficult our lives are, no matter how bad it's been, we can make a choice one day. But anyway, that's how I want to end it, letting everybody know that you're all special, you're all, you know, something took a lot to happen to make you know way way beyond my mother and father and my grandparents and things like that in our culture we say our seven grandmothers speaks to our entire bloodline right but uh, be aware that it took a lot for you to be here honor that and, and embrace it and, and, and be that anyway thank you Laura Thank you so much, Jose.